innovation and disruption have entered the healthcare marketplace conversation with a daily frequency. But what does innovation and disruption really mean? Welcome to Dynamics High Five Podcast, and today's episode, Did You Say Disrupt? I'm Mindy McGrath, Healthcare Industry Learning Lead and Public Health Sector Advisor, and I'm joined by my friends, co-hosts, and fellow healthcare industry enthusiasts, Ryan Hummel, Executive at Vynamic, and Mike Catone, Manager at Vynamic. Hello, everyone. You're listening to the Vynamic Hi-Fi Podcast. It's our take on healthcare topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. There has been a swirl of industry news around merger and acquisition activity, the reevaluation of traditional business models, and overall, a theme that has been percolating for some time within healthcare around the topic of innovation, specifically disruptive innovation. Our guest today is Matt O'Dell, Vynamics Insight Lead, and we like to call him our guru on innovation. He's with us today to walk through what disruptive innovation really means and how it can be applied to what's going on in the healthcare market. And stick around for our parting thought. It's that thing that we've either read, seen, or heard that we'd like to share with you. Hey, Mindy, before we get started, we have a big debate that we need to discuss, and it's pretzels, randomly Sounds enough. Sounds awesome. I know, right? <laughs> I love the so, topic of pretzels. So let's go around the room. I want to know what your, <laughs> what your passion is around pretzels, hard or soft, dipping sauce or not. It has a lot to do with innovation. Mike, you're up. So uh, really happy to be here. Uh, very excited to talk pretzels. I would say that I am a soft pretzel guy, uh, without a doubt, uh, and the dipping sauce is probably dependent on the setting for the pretzels. If I'm just getting a pretzel for myself, I'll usually go honey mustard. If I'm hosting a group of people, got a big pretzel tray, I usually get a variety, get your plain standard, spicy, and then I'll get something sweet as well. But I'm, I am a soft pretzel guy. Uh, Seven days a week and twice on Sunday. So, Matt, remembering this is a half-hour podcast, um, <laughs> could you give us your answer to the pretzel Soft question? pretzels, yeah. Dipping sauce occasionally would be cheese or mustard, but, okay. you know, it's all about having a moderate amount of salt. You can't That's go overboard on that. Love it. Mindy. Yeah, I'm a Philly girl, so I'm going to go with the soft pretzels as well, and I like mine plain and simple. So I'm the outlier. I, 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 uh, I've been traveling a lot with clients. And on my plane, I get these little mini bags of these tiny little bow tie pretzels, and they like make my flight. I'm very simple. They taste they taste better in in the plane though. In in, in the air, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So now we got the pretzel conversation over with. Yeah. Let's go on to topic one. Oh, that's right. And let's talk disruptive innovation. So you guys hear the word disrupt frequently in the media, and there's even a tech conference by that name now. In popular culture disruption has simply come to mean a new innovative product or a service. But when we really dive into the term disruption, there are many layers to it. And Matt, I'm just wondering, like when you think about disruption, since you work in the space so much, what do you think does, you know, listeners really need to know about the term disruptive innovation? I'm happy to be here. And, and I hope by the end of the conversation, Mike and I have demystified disruptive innovation for our listeners. Disruptive innovation is a management framework first developed by Harvard Business School professor Clayton Christensen. The framework helps us view how innovation plays out in the real world. And if we take the time in our busy schedules to learn this framework, it'll provide us a unique lens to view the world and inform us as to how we should approach business strategy and the innovation process. 
Okay. That is a lot to unpack. Um, but before we get started into the framework, can we talk about why disruptive innovation is important? It really has um, almost like a nebulous feel to it because I think because of the frequency of the utilization of the term, mm. it seems like every move being made in business today, and especially in healthcare, is being termed disruptive. Mm. So why do we continue to discuss disruptive innovations importance. Disruptive innovation is important because disruption is a process for how some new products and services get into the market. What we often notice is that an outcome of this process results in companies being displaced or the upheaval of entire industries, but that typically doesn't happen overnight. I know our listeners will want to jump straight into how disruptive innovation applies to them, uh, but I think it's first important to take a step back to illustrate how disruptive innovation works outside of healthcare. And by using a readily understandable example, it can teach us to fish. So we can apply the disruptive innovation framework across the wide range of circumstances that we encounter in healthcare. You said fish, so I'll take the bait. Let's do that. Are you ready to go there, Mike? Hook, line, and sinker, Ryan. Yes. Uh, aside from punning, you know, I really like to travel. Uh, so when Matt and I were talking about disruptive innovation, one of the first companies that came to mind was Airbnb. If you look at the success of a company like Airbnb, which is disruptive when compared to the traditional hotel industry, your first instinct may be to ask, couldn't the hotel executives at a huge multinational hotel chain think, hmm, why can't we use empty bedrooms to, to actually rent out? Uh, people aren't using their bedrooms most of the day. So it would be a great business opportunity for us to try and tackle that. And it's almost certain that they really did see this capacity, but they consciously chose to ignore it because almost all companies abide by the profit motive. That is, they aim to provide better and better services to their best customers over time in the hopes of better profits. The profit motive is therefore used to screen, prioritize, and ultimately determine how a company allocates its resources and where it invests. So it's not that these large national hotel chains and their executives didn't know that there was untapped capacity, they were attempting to do exactly what they were expected to do by shareholders, and that's to make more and bigger profits. And at the outset, Airbnb wasn't very profitable, so it didn't really seem like an attractive investment. Uh, that's a good point, Mike. So, so Airbnb wasn't very profitable, and that was one of the reasons it may have been ignored as a competitor in the, in the space. Um, it sounds interesting. It sounds like kind of a paradox or a catch-22. On one hand, balancing the attraction of a new force in the market with the responsibility to shareholders and reliance on more traditional business models that have been successful for, gosh, decades. Yeah, and it can certainly seem that way to the executives in the situation and to the folks in middle management who are really putting those resources like into action. Mm -hmm. But it's important to understand that through the evolution of a company to create better and better services – that growth can actually become an Achilles heel because you get more fixed costs that are built in to support more premium services over time. And here's the key, and I think this is really essential for, for our listeners to understand, that at some point, the performance of your products or services may become more than good enough for most customers. And in effect, you're either overshooting what customers are willing to pay for or the products and services become too complicated for the average customers. So in the case of a large hotel chain, both of the trends were taking place at the same time, 
And a competitor came along and had basically zero fixed cost. And that sounds like such a tough hurdle to me when you think about these traditional types of hospitality models that we've seen and trying to get past what they always do and how they're structured to have to deal with this new competitor that comes into the market with an entirely different approach. Yeah, well, the story isn't quite over for them yet. You know, there still may be a lot of room in the market for them to to excel and try and make impact on their traditional business model. Uh, but it, it will fundamentally never really be the same, um, especially when we're talking about the non-business traveler segment of the market. You know, but, you know, if you flip that on its head and you sort of look at it from the Airbnb lens, it'll be really difficult for Airbnb to replicate the, the kinds of services and amenities that large... Uh, networked hotel chains can offer rewards programs, things that you that business travelers specifically are really looking for when they go and stay uh, for a business trip. So, we've been seeing some interesting uh, M and A acquisition, M and A activity in that space to really, I think, build out some of the differentiators of a, a service that's more distributed, like Airbnb. Mm-hmm. So, I think it's a good example of a company trying to enhance its strengths in the face of a disruptive um, player in the market. Yeah, and and Mike and Matt, as you know, this is the High Five podcast. So we look at healthcare in many of these podcasts. So it's really important that you know that my mind is now spinning with all these healthcare implications with what we're just talking about. And I wanted to go back to what you previously said um, when where disruption starts, right? So once a company's products or services or a healthcare company's products or services become more than good enough, I think that was the phrase you used, they begin to kind of overshoot the price point or the level of complexity that the customer is willing to pay for. So, so what's the significance of that development? Well, sometimes it's pretty apparent that you've overshot your customers' needs. And a way that you may see this is your customers aren't upgrading their project, their products or they're not buying new services and products that you're putting into markets. You're never going to find customers who sort of shout from the rooftops, you're overshooting my needs. That's not necessarily how a business is going to get these indicators. You know, More often, customers, they might just quietly move on to some other product that fits their needs better or just simply... A, you know, provide some attrition and not purchase the next uh, product that you sell. And there's also something at work within disruptive innovation called um, asymmetry of motivations. And our big incumbent within uh, these hotel stories, these large chains that have hundreds of thousands of rooms around the world, they ignored Airbnb as competition because they had no incentive to actually shift their core business model to meet what Airbnb uh, was offering. And, you know, it's it's actually funny. Airbnb got its name because the founder was using air mattresses in in the spare bedroom in San Francisco uh, to rent out to a, a conference where all the hotel all the hotel rooms were booked. And so that's a really specific and sort of hacky way to get to a good business idea. And I think it makes sense that a large hotel chain might never think of something like that. But you can you can see that Airbnb really started to move up market from that initial idea, and now they have some incredible properties around the world that I think a lot of travelers put on the same level or even above a traditional hotel chain, and it's a really formidable competitor in the market. You know, as you were talking about the massive number of rooms that are available in these big, large, multinational hotel chains, I mean, I instantly just draw the parallel to what we see in the hospital market in healthcare. So I want to pivot 
our discussion a little bit to talk more about what's going on in the healthcare industry. I don't want to rent a bed in a hotel in a hospital, by the way, Mindy, if you're going there. <laughs> I, no. I get you. Okay. I'm sure that's been pitched. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, there really is so much going on in the healthcare industry. I mean, we are reaching a tipping point in terms of cost, trust, and complexity within the U.S. healthcare market. The industry seems just so ripe for disruption. And Matt, I'm wondering, what when you think about the term disruptive innovation and the practice of it as a management framework, what do you think the implications of disruptive innovation actually could be for the healthcare industry? Well, the healthcare industry in the U.S. today is a mishmash of different business models that don't play nicely together, and it's really resulted in a huge cost-shifting game, traditionally between payers and providers. But as healthcare costs have grown, reaching nearly 18% of GDP in the U.S., more costs are shifting onto patients and plan sponsors. Patients all want the highest levels of care, some of which have astronomical price tags, so we're seeing healthcare costs continue to grow. Beyond ensuring competitions in the market and having some consumer-friendly regulations to prevent the bad actors in the market from price gouging, we need to come to terms with the fact that the healthcare industry in the U.S. is too fragmented to get our arms around. The way out of this is to get a 360-degree view of patient and cost or price data and harness disruptive innovation to take costs out of the system. We're heading toward the integration of payers and providers as quote, organized customers, which seems to be the business model best able to keep costs down while harnessing disruptive innovation. So what are some of the non-traditional entities that we're seeing emerge? Well, we're seeing CVS's acquisition of Aetna, and that merges Aetna's payer model with CVS's Minute Clinic, primary care, retail pharmacy, and PBM. And then you have Intermountain Healthcare, which is already an integrated payer and provider model, and they're pushing to create a generic pharmaceutical company for inpatient products where shortages are common. Lastly, we've heard that several titans of industry, Amazon, J.P. Morgan, and Berkshire Hathaway, have decided to enter the healthcare space in some form or another, but which may fall short if they don't find a disruptive model that gets to the heart of the issues in the healthcare system. I really see disruptive innovation as the only way to structurally take costs out of the healthcare system. Matt, you just said the only way, and that, that's a bold statement. So perhaps you can walk me through your thinking on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a bit like debating macroeconomics, though. There may be some haters out there, but a good theory is able to show time and time again that it works, that it's stable. And I've been seeing these trends in the healthcare market over the last decade, and so rather than debate it, and I don't want to cap out here, yes. but I'll shed light on the framework and let our li- listeners be the judge. So Really, there are three types of innovation our listeners need to know to understand the framework. Sustaining innovations, low-end disruptions, and new market disruptions. So I'll just take those in turn in terms of defining them. Sustaining innovations may be incremental or breakthrough, and they make existing products or services better in terms of performance in the hopes of gaining greater profits, and they target the industry's most demanding customers. And in this arena, the incumbents almost always win. So think of a sustaining innovation as GE bringing out its next generation MRI machine. Low-end disruptions start off on the low end of the market, and they have good enough performance when compared to the performance dimensions of incumbent competitors' products and services. These types of low-end innovations target customers that are overserved by existing products and services. 
they don't create new markets, but gain against the old. Think of a generic pharmaceutical company that has the similar efficacy and effectiveness as a branded drug. New market disruptions target non-consumers in the market by providing lower performance across traditional dimensions, but better performance in other areas such as convenience and simplicity. A great example of a new market disruption is Crest White Strips. Many potential customers wouldn't shell out $2,000 for a teeth whitening procedure that has to be scheduled at a dentist's office, so they forego teeth whitening procedures altogether. That, that group of customers, we would say those are non-consumers. And while they can't produce Hollywood smiles, the price point and convenience of Crest White Strips allow an entirely new market to consume teeth whitening products. Interesting take. <clears throat> and I can see how these are distinctly different types of innovations that you just mentioned, and they may require different approaches to management. And back to healthcare, specific to the healthcare industry, you know, my thoughts go to disruptive innovation that results in less intermediaries in the system, addressing the backwards nature of claims processing to drive transparency, the creative the creation of perhaps a universal health card that a person could carry all of their health information and alleviate waste and duplication. So can we continue this conversation and share how disruptive innovation perhaps can take costs out of the healthcare system? Yeah, I'll try to simplify it a little bit. Um, and so maybe a way to think about it is think about what type of provider you need depending on the complexity of diagnosis or treatment. The most complex disease states and treatments require a specialist or a subspecialist physician and as you move down the complexity scale, you may have a family practice physician, nurse practitioner, or a nurse. And at the very bottom end of the scale, you'd have self-care. With each shift down the scale, you have an opportunity to match the appropriate level of care to where the disease state is in terms of scientific knowledge and medical know-how. So fortunately, we've seen that a lot of the monitoring for things like type 2 diabetes can be done in the home because of advances in diagnostic equipment. And that's really a win-win. As most patients prefer to monitor their conditions at home, when possible, to stay out of the hospital, and it's a lot less expensive, too. Thanks, Matt. Um, I'm going to switch my question to, to Mike here. In the Airbnb example discussed earlier, uh, putting yourself in the shoes of, say, another high-end hotel CEO like Marriott, what would you have done differently? And how does this align with how healthcare leaders should or will be considering disruptive innovation frameworks? Well... Hindsight isn't always twenty twenty, but if you're an if you're an executive in this situation, regardless of your industry, you really have three options, and none of them are ignoring it. <laughs> your three options are to acquire, uh, to merge, or to compete against yourself. You need to recognize very early on, uh, you know what or who in the market has disruptive potential compared to you, and skate to where the puck is going to be. Disruptive innovations must be managed in a wholly separate business unit or the acquiring company will inadvertently kill off the business they just bought. This is because the profit motive prioritizes activities that more immediately return greater profits. And when given the choice, managers are incentivized to allocate resources to the core business over the disruptive innovation. And you know, before you ask, and I have some experience within the area, there are not any exceptions to this rule of thumb that I'm aware of. You know, just to, to tie into this, though, the thing that's so intriguing to me, and I, we're going to have a whole separate podcast on this, is when you see the announcement about Amazon, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Berkshire Hathaway, 
And they explicitly in that announcement stated that they would be free from the profit-making motive, um, which is really telling to me, right, in terms of just the way that they look at how profit-making could actually be a real hindrance to actually capturing the essence of disruptive innovation within the current healthcare system. So more on that in a little bit. Okay, so on to topic two. Let's dive a little bit deeper into disruptive innovation in healthcare. We've chatted a lot in this cast about how disruptive innovation has worked in other industries, but we're feeling a little hard-pressed, I think, in trying to find similar examples in the healthcare market. Is it the structure of the industry in healthcare? What is not causing disruptive innovation to take hold? That's a great question, and it's really proven quite difficult in healthcare to harness disruptive innovation for a number of reasons. First, it's difficult enough when there isn't a fragmented landscape, but when you launch a new product or service in healthcare, you instantly have at least three customers, payers, providers, and patients, and then sometimes employers. Second, because physicians go through a great deal of training and have historically operated in departmental silos, It's a challenge for them to relinquish control when it might make sense to shift to lower value, shift their lower value work down the chain or to facilitate that care through a lower cost team-based model, especially when there are legacy systems and processes that make it more difficult to do that. And third, because it's a highly regulated industry, the burden of proof for new upstarts in terms of randomized controlled trials or real world data pose very high barriers to entry. And all of this maintains upward pressures on prices across the industry. Yeah, and I think, you know, a, a part of that you didn't mention, Matt, but I think it's probably driven in here, too, mm-hmm. is just the incentive structure in the healthcare market really protects or insulates that traditional foundation, mm-hmm. um, which is another aspect of this that I think is making the stickiness not so sticky right now. Yeah, and you, you've mentioned kind of the difficulty in the healthcare industry to get into this this world. Matt, I would love if you could kind of share some possible or promising business models of this. Yeah, one promising model is Iora Health, which operates in partnership with Humana. And they use non-physician health coaches to proactively help patients manage their primary care. It has elements of a low-end disruption when compared to traditional primary care models that are offered through employer-based coverage because it has a different operating and financial model. Iora takes on full financial risk of their patient population and is paid on a per-member, sorry, per-member per-month basis rather than a fee-for-service model. Their care team regularly hosts team huddles to discuss their patient populations and use something called a worry score to identify which patients require an immediate call from a health coach. The health coach can then establish agreed-upon discussion topics for each physician encounter, and they also provide debriefs afterwards. It's the thoroughness of this process that seems to produce better value for the dollar for a couple of reasons. First, it's a collaboration with the patient, meaning it may be more effective in helping patients take ownership of their health rather than trying to force behavior change upon them. In Iora's model also doesn't make patients feel like they're on their own once they get out of the hospital or the physician's office, which is sometimes a criticism of the fee-for-service model or some of the 
the uh, retail clinics that we often describe as treat and street. And second, the risk-bearing aspect of the payer provider model creates incentives for physicians to focus on how to create better outcomes at a lower cost because you're only going to get paid so much per patient. A second example is CVS's acquisition of Aetna. CVS has already established a large network of retail clinics when they partnered with Minute Clinic. It's important to note that something is only disruptive when compared to something else. And disruptions have elements of both low-end disruptions and new market disruptions. Minute Clinic targeted customers with a model that had both low-end and new market disruptive elements. It was a low-end disruption compared to traditional primary care because it provided, quote, good enough care to the lower end of the market with a low-cost, visible fixed-price menu of services at locations that are open every day of the week. It was a new market disruption because it competed against non-consumption. Those who didn't have the ability to establish regular primary care those folks were now coming in for checkups, and they would have otherwise have foregone care and, until they ended up in the ER. You may have noticed that retail clinics are everywhere now. Because something is only disruptive when compared to something else, at present, Minute Clinic may no longer be disruptive when compared to other retail clinics. Based on what we know about the profit motive and how it affects corporate strategy, and the disruptiveness of its clinics being diluted by this intensifying competition, we can expect CVS to attempt to move up market beyond primary care to integrate more complex and profitable segments of care while leveraging their size for pharmaceutical discounts, greater foot traffic to their stores, and perhaps most importantly, to have the provider side of the house take on patient risk for those using Aetna insurance to create that payer provider model that harnesses innovation at a lower cost. And it's interesting that the CVS Aetna model, I mean, I think it's really posing some curiosity, right, in the marketplace right now in terms of, like, what do they do once this merger gets finalized uh, and what types of new products or services are going to be a result of it. I think it's fascinating, although I worry that these newly created really large healthcare entities are going to be difficult to steer just due to their sheer size. So you also mentioned the profit motive again, and we talked about this earlier, but I still think this thing with Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, and J.P. Morgan is going to be something that we need to look at um, because they are intentionally trying to steer away from that profit-making motive and those constraints that now seem to be associated with the current healthcare system. What do you make of that? Agreed. First, the, the size of these newly forming organizations will, will create innate challenges. Um, and then you see this nonprofit entity uh, being created by Amazon, J.P. Morgan, and Berkshire Hathaway. And I think what they're trying to do is shield themselves from uh, the investor pressures, the short-term pressures that can arise in a for-profit structure. So whether or not they ultimately exceed, it's really going to force legacy companies to farther challenge some of their entrenched assumptions about what healthcare companies look like. They might even ask basic questions like, do hospitals need beds? That is one to definitely ponder, right? Like, I think that conversation's coming up now. It's, it's going to be an interesting one. But shifting gears for a minute, Mike, I know you spend a lot of time helping your clients in the life sciences sector. So I wanted to ask you if you're seeing the adoption of disruption or disruptive innovation actually happening 
Um, and how do you react if you're a pharmaceutical executive? Well, you know, the integration of the payer and provider entities has really forced the traditional players uh, to merge into large integrated delivery networks or IDNs. And you can think of these as basically organized customers. The scale of these organizations means that they can command greater leverages when we're in negotiation for pricing, uh, and they're really forcing the value discussion. And they can do that because of the size and scale of these organizations. And, you know, they'll, they'll be asking more frequently uh, from pharma companies to, to maybe even bear some of the financial risks of the patients using their therapies. And it's really incumbent upon these organizations to provide greater transparency in how their therapies improve outcomes and, and to continue to find ways to provide better value. Yeah, Mike, something you said earlier in the podcast um, is really, I think, relevant to what we're talking about now, so I'd love for you to expound on it. You mentioned executives have three options when facing disruption. You said that the third option, and I think you said, is competing against yourself. What do you mean by that? Well, if you don't acquire a merge, you have the option of developing a disruptive product or service yourself. Because it is disruptive, you're essentially pitting that business against your core business which in and of itself sounds like a challenge, doesn't it? This is what we can call the disrupt yourself model. Dayton Hudson, a traditional department store whose name you may not recognize, did this to great success when it realized its subsidiary called Target, which you probably do recognize. I do. Uh, which was a, low, was a low cost disruption compared to traditional department stores. When Target's profits began to grow faster and become bigger than its Dayton Hudson department stores, it began shifting the bulk of its resources to fund its Target stores. That is how you effectively manage different business models with separate entities to disrupt yourself. So the new growth business overtakes the old to become the core business. You know, when I looked last, only 12% of the Fortune 500 companies from 1955 are alive today. Uh, and the moral of this story is really to nurture the disruptive innovations before core business gets sick. I like the link back to healthcare, actually, <laughs> with that. But, you know, in thinking about that even further, I, Matt, I'd ask you, because you've seen this, are there tools out there that can help clients to identify disruptive innovation? Yes, but that might require a, another discussion altogether. <laughs> Oh, so it's one of those things where we we could keep talking and talking <laughs> yeah. about it. Okay, so we'll we'll table that for another limit. one. Yeah. yeah, and on that note, I mean, I would say this. I think there's a ton of opportunity in the healthcare market across sectors uh, to really dive much deeper into disruptive innovation. Um, it is one of those things that we could talk about endlessly, but we are going to need to wrap up this part of the episode and move on to our parting thought. It's that item that Ryan and I have either seen, heard, or read that we'd like to share with you. Um, so, Ryan, if you don't mind, I'm going to go first, and then I'll Fire go away. second. Great. So I am actually going to stick with this topic of disruptive innovation because there have been instances in the healthcare market where the actual term disruptive innovation is being used, and it doesn't quite live up to the discussion that we just had in a recent Washington Post article entitled, Two Visions for the Future of Healthcare Are at War in Pittsburgh. It was about the ongoing competitive battle between UPMC and Highmark Health, and it was noted that UPMC's CEO, Jeffrey Romoth, said the competition, which took off in 2011 upon Highmark Health's foray into the provider realm, is an essential agent of innovation. And here's what he said, you know, verbatim. He said, in the midst of it, meaning the competition, 
was disruptive. Oh, they were at each other's throats, and that's the way it appeared, but that's what disruption is about. And let's be clear about this. Without disruption, change is much, much slower. So the executive who was quoted here, I think, is an example of how the term disruptive can sometimes be misused or can at least be muddled in terms of defining what disruptive innovation is as a management framework. I mean, being extremely competitive or at each other's throats may cause inconvenience and uncomfortable tension, but it doesn't really pertain to only disruptive innovation, but rather competition in general. Uh, The disruptive innovation part of this story, as Mike pointed out to me, really is between UPMC and Highmark and the fact that there's a contagiousness of disruption and how that disruption might be the best way for them to compete in a business area in which they are themselves being disrupted. So um, I thought it was a really interesting article. I think the other piece of this I found really intriguing in this article is that when a survey was taken of most Pittsburgh area residents, um, they believe believe that the relationship between Highmark and UPMC UPMC is a contentious one that's actually pushed pushed each organization further into silos. And so the question for them is whether disruptive innovation from both of these entities is actually benefiting the end user or whether these organizations are just disrupting their care. Mm -hmm. So check it out. It's an interesting article. poses some interesting questions. Disruption can mean different things to different people, right? Correct. (laughs) Um, Hopefully not after this podcast. That's right. (laughs) Hopefully we've done our job and and cleared it up. (laughs) You have, Mike. Um, My my article and my parting thought is is something a little more esoteric. And uh, it's something I read recently about AI. And it's nothing I have a lot of knowledge on, artificial intelligence, but I thought it was really interesting that... Uh, the Department of Veterans Affairs, the VA, just announced a partnership with Alphabet, which is Google's arm. Um, Alphabet's official um, in artificial intelligent arm is called DeepMind, and they just entered an agreement to study 700,000 depersonalized health records. Uh, what I wasn't aware of is the fact that something like 11% of in-hospital deaths around the world are caused by what they call patient deterioration. And it's not about treating medicines. It's really about predicting them and preventing them from happening. And these are preventable um, deaths in hospitals. And the VA sees a lot of this in their inpatient. So it'll be interesting to see how disruptive this AI arm of Alphabet is going to be in taking a look at these almost 1 million medical records and seeing if they can create algorithms that pinpoint the most common signs and then marry that up with the patients that are in the VA hospitals at any given time and prevent some of these deaths. So excited to see how that's going to go. I think that's really exciting, Ryan. And just to give a little taste about how powerful some of these systems can be, a system developed by DeepMind at Google was trained to play chess, learned to play chess in four hours by playing chess against itself and beat the world's best chess computer. Wow. And that's sort of built from the ground up. So I know that is a really daunting amount of information, uh, but I think as as long as we can get these innovative technologies into areas and and really test them out and see if they can provide us with good information, uh, there's a really good chance that we're going to see some positive results. Exciting. So this concludes today's High Five podcast, and we want to hear from you about today's episode or other topics that may be on your mind please feel free to contact us at 267-930-4711 and share your message. 
For additional conversation about the work that we're doing in the healthcare industry or a deeper follow-up on how Vynamic can assist you with your business initiatives, please contact us at highfive at vynamic.com. If you would like to read more on any of our thoughts about things related to the healthcare industry, please check out our insights page on the vynamic.com website. And until the next cast, we wish you a good day. Thank you.